outside. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? 15 people? Who is 15? I don't even know 15 people. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? So I'm like, well, that's, that's going to be enough. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of 4.30 in the morning. This is your boy Ben. And Pat is back as well. How you doing today, Pat? I'm doing alright, how about yourself? I'm good. Is this episode 92? I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 92. Yeah, my back, definitely feeling 92. Definitely, 92. That was the year of the Dream Team. Yeah. I don't know where they played. What what year? That was the Olympics, but I don't know where the hell they played at. 92. Um, Was it Russia? It, no. Ah, I think it was like, it was, was like was, Paris was, or somewhere. Was that the year the United States beat Russia in hockey? No, that was the Winter Olympics, and that was the Miracle on Ice. Oh, fuck. Mike Ruzioni scored the, the game-winning goal. Gotcha. Anyways, I don't know news. All right, I'll get started here. First one's from AP news pat's favorite awesome farmer georgia dog injured saving sheep from coyote attack a georgia sheepdog is recovering at home two days after killing a pack of coyotes that attacked his owner's flock of sheep farmer john weirwiller said casper a 20 month old great pyrenees from decatur fought off a pack of coyotes who were threatening weirwiller's sheep farm he said the fight lasted longer than a half an hour left eight coyotes dead and bloodied casper with skin and part of his tail torn off weirwiller told Atlanta's WAGA-TV. He scampered off but returned injured two days later after Weirwiller put out a call on social media. He was kind of looking at me like, boss, stop looking at me now at how bad I look. Just take care of me, Weirwiller said. Lifeline Animal Project has raised more than $15,000 for the sheepdog's hospital bills. Though dogs rarely prevail like Casper, packs of coyotes attacking pets have grown somewhat common in rural and growing suburban areas that abut wildlands throughout the United States. I don't know who wrote this article but they did a terrible job they they spelled the united states untied states <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny but okay there's there's, there's a lot going there's on a lot with this. okay with so this. we have a sheep dog was recovering for two days at home after killing a pack of coyotes eight coyotes is what that's that eight coyotes holy shit that were attacking the owner's sheep so, so we have three different kinds of animals here. We got sheeps. We got sheeps. We got sheep a, dogs. A sheep dog and, and coyotes. coyotes. A great Pyrenees. Eight coyotes. This dog fought off. That's pretty impressive. And no, I I'm, think he said he scampered off, but returned injured two days later. So this dog was gone for two days. The dog came back. I guess the dog would come back. The dog came back. Like, could you imagine? It's probably days. How that battle was. Like, how long did this battle last? This caught this dog killed eight of these coyotes. Now I don't know what kind of proximity the humans were to this, but this would be like the noisiest thing y- yeah. you would think. Could you imagine? I don't know. Now a sheep dog. I wonder if the coyotes attacked the sheep dog thinking it was a sheep. It's possible. Probably. Well, the the dog was protecting the sheep. Okay. The coyotes. That, the coyotes were attacking the sheep. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, it was a little choppy. Kind of weird read. Yeah. Now, I was thinking about coyotes for a little bit sure. this week, just earlier this week. I was just kind of just thinking about them because nice. sometimes you just think about animals. Right. Because welcome to life. So let's say you're on a hike and there's like a single coyote just like in the area. Would you be scared of that coyote? Would you worry about that? Like just like one. Like I said in a prior episode, I believe, I don't fuck with wild animals. Sure. Okay. Now you're not fucking with it, but it's in, you know what's in the area. It's like. Now, I have never encountered a, okay, I know what's in the area. Sure. Okay. I would rather see it than not be able to see it. Okay, I guess that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I would not like, let's say I'm in the mountains. I wouldn't want a coyote to have the high ground to where I couldn't see him. He was up on like a ridge or something eyeing me. So let's say you're walking, like you're like on a hike or whatever. Sure. And you see a coyote within like 40 feet of you, but you see it. Yeah. Is that an immediate cause for panic? Not immediate. It's probably a cause for caution. Yes. Okay. Most definitely. I would probably turn around. Sure. But but then again, you're... You're it, not really gaining or losing anything if you already see it. Yes. What's turning around going to do? Well, to get away from it. But sometimes you don't want to run from those things. Sure. Uh, definitely not going to run. Sure. But I'm, I'm going to get away from it. I, I don't want to encounter it. Sure. Now, how many have you, how many coyotes have you encountered in the wild? I have never encountered a coyote. Really? Have you ever seen one? I've seen one at a zoo. You haven't seen one in the wild? No. Really? Not that I know of. 
I might have, you know. I've seen a handful. You know, I don't Most really. Most of them have been driving. You know, it's crazy. You know, I, I, I used to date a girl that lived out in the boonies. Sure. And there's coyotes out there. I never saw one out there. I've heard them constantly. Like, I've heard a lot of them. Sure. I've seen them. Yeah, I just, I've never. I'm trying to think if, I think my parents have had coyotes in the yard. I feel like their their cameras have caught coyotes before. Hmm. They've caught deer. I got to ask and see. I know they've caught foxes. I have seen foxes. Sure, I've seen a lot of foxes. My grandparents live on, uh, like, the border of a cemetery. Yeah, you're going to get a lot city. of you're going to get a lot of animals over there. And they, we've seen consistent coyotes there. And I've also seen them out in uh, east across the river. Sure. In that community out there. Sure. I've seen some out there before. Definitely. So, anyways, that's a good news story. My first one, well, this one's going to come from themirror.co.uk. We've used that. I feel like this is a pretty common source for us. Now, this is a sensationalized headline. It's going to be pretty cool, though. Area 51 is real! Exclamation point. Former CIA agent, in quotation marks, shares UFO confession on his deathbed. Hmm. A former CIA agent has shared a shocking deathbed confession, saying that Area 51 is real and that he went there and saw real-life aliens. The anonymous 77-year-old man spoke to UFO researcher Richard Dolan and award-winning documentary maker Jeremy Corbell Mm. during a sit-down interview where he lifted the lid on top-secret government projects. He made claims about the infamous Area 51, as the Daily Star reports, said he He'd seen UFOs in the flesh and confirmed the existence of extraterrestrials. He gave a sensational interview after allegedly being warned to stop sharing confidential information as he thought he would soon pass away. The anonymous agent was concerned about sharing his true identity, so simply went by The Anonymous during the interview. He claimed he worked for the CIA between 1957 and 1960 as Howes and Wise Report, where he spent time in a military base in the southeast of the United States, where they analyzed physical evidence. This is terribly written. This article is not written well. Sure. Journalist Linda Moulton Howe, who I've also talked about on the podcast before, interviewed the man in 1998 in 11 hours of audio tape where he went by the name Agent Cooper. K-E-W-P-E-R. He shared secrets that were supposed to be confidential. Following the interview, he was allegedly warned not to do any more <laughs> by the CIA. <laughs> but in 2013, fearing he might soon pass away, he came out of hiding for one more conversation. This time with Dolan. He claimed he was taken in the area 51 to look at items allegedly found and retrieved by the U.S. government. He claimed among them was a flying saucer that had crashed and landed in July 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico. He also claimed there were live aliens there and that he was taken to the S-4 facility in Area 51. Here, he claimed he saw live extraterrestrials. Now, I'm going to stop there, but S-4 is the same facility that Bob Lazar claimed that he worked at. Yes. So, I don't know what to do with this one. Now, this is like a nine-year-old story that is just hitting the newsreel now. So it's a current news story about something that happened like nine years ago. Gotcha. Now, he had to go to none other than Jeremy Corbell, among others, to talk about this. Sure. So, realistically, I don't know what we're going to do with this. I don't know. You know... I can't, I'm not saying this is the case for this guy, but I feel like some people, they want to like leave some type of mark right before they die. Sure. And they would just want to say something. Sure. Really controversial. Sure. I feel like this happens a lot. I I can't, you can't rule it out. You really can't rule it out. Like like, I haven't seen a lot of stories like this, but you, you get what I'm saying. I get what you're saying. Now, the only thing that would make me think maybe not is he interviewed with Linda Moulton Howe in 1998 about this type of shit. Sure, that, that's a little compelling. And then he came back to do his deathbed confession again in 2013. So maybe that could have been the case, but he kept us going for a long time. Sure. Now, we don't know who the hell this guy is. We don't know how legitimate he is. But it was good enough to get the attention of Linda Moulton Howe, who, to be fair, she's one of the better journalists when it comes to this shit. She'll interview anybody, but she's good at, like, disseminating information. She's good at getting really good sources. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Jeremy Corbell's at the tippy top of the game right now. (laughs) (laughs) So he's getting good people to to talk about this type of shit. Now, what I don't know is, I'm assuming this has to be part of like a new Jeremy Corbell documentary that's coming out soon. Because why would this news story hit now if the interview happened nine years ago? Right. And the Linda Morton Howe interview happened 24 years ago. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know what's exactly going on with this one, but it is interesting that it kind of corroborates what Bob Lazar was talking about. Yeah. At a time where Bob Lazar's story would have been out there, but it wouldn't have been as easily accessible as it is today. So. 100%. 
that. Yeah. We'll see what happens with this former CIA agent. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what Jeremy Corbell is up to. Sure. Anyways, that's all I got with that one. My next one is from our favorite UPI on news. Oh, God. He's at it again, dude. He's fucking I at it again. I can't deal with this guy anymore. He's at it again. Idaho man hangs up five t-shirts to break Guinness World Record. An Idaho man with more than 250 Guinness World Record titles added another record to his name by hanging up five t-shirts in 16.78 seconds. David Rush, who breaks Guinness World Records to promote STEM education, said it took some extra planning to make sure he was following all the record-keeping organization's rules for the fastest time to hang up five t-shirts. Rush said his first obstacle came when he discovered the neck openings of one of his own shirt of one of his own shirts were too large for Guinness World regulations. So he turned to his wife to one of his wife's shirts as a replacement. He then discovered his hangers were too short and had to be replaced with longer ones to comply with the rules. Rush successfully hung up five t-shirts in 16.78 seconds, beating the record of 27.93 seconds set by Kato Koizumi of Japan in 2015. Okay, who came up with the rules of hanging t-shirts? Like, who who started this rec- Like, who started this record? I mean, obviously it predates David Rush if there's already a previous record holder. Yeah, but like, who, who, who came up with that? Maybe, okay, so David Rush does this to promote STEM education. You know, I, I, Maybe, I wonder, I wonder why they don't ask him how this promotes STEM education. I don't know, but I'm thinking that the creator of this record did this to promote home economics education. Sure. Because we're combining STEM with home ec <laughs> in this project. Right. So I'm thinking there's got to be, if he's doing this for STEM, there's got to be different people doing it for different inspirational sources. Sure. I mean, home economics is probably just as important as STEM education. Yeah. Maybe not to David Rush, but to some people. Right. So I'm going to say that the answer to your question lies in that. Sounds good. Thanks, Pat. I don't know. I'm kind of burnt <laughs> out today. I'm not going to lie. That's okay. You know, you know I, was, I was also wondering, I've never gone through the process of breaking a Guinness World Record, but like, do you have to call these guys up every time you think you think you have a record <laughs> broke? Like, this guy, like, they, they got to be getting sick of this dude. Could you imagine that that would be one of the jobs that we should have covered on our crazy jobs is the phone answerer for Guinness World Records? They got to have a guy dedicated sitting there just waiting for David Rush to call. Welcome to Guinness World Records. What is your record? No, they... Yeah, uh, I just took a fart and it lasted for over a minute. <laughs> it's got to be shit like that. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. Anyways, is that all you got with that one? Yep, that's it. David Rush. I have a feeling that we're not going to stop talking about him anytime soon. Probably not. All right, this one's a little bit different. This one's kind of funny, though. And this one's going to come from Total Pro Sports, which, again, I'm pretty sure we've used this source before. Sure. Colorado Buffalo's athletic director openly admits school currently doesn't have the money to pay Deion Sanders. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, he's Deion Sanders down. accepted the job at Colorado. Yeah. Head coaching job head coaching football job. Deion Sanders arrived in Boulder on Sunday, where he was officially announced as Colorado's next head coach. At Jackson State, Deion Sanders' annual base salary was $300,000. At Colorado, Deion Sanders' annual base salary may be north of $5 million. $5 million for a football coach. That's a, a lot. football coach. Colorado. Colorado. It's not like he's exactly uh It's Power 5, but it's not like it's... It's not Alabama. It's like the Rutgers of the Big Ten, basically. Yeah. Colorado Athletic Director Rick George is more than excited about the program possibly being turned around under Sanders, but he did admit something shocking about the signing about signing the NFL Hall of Famer to a lucrative five-year contract for $29.5 million. The school actually doesn't have the money to pay Sanders, <laughs> but George expects a school will have it soon. Huh. That's about all I got with that one. But I wonder how they're going to get the money. It doesn't seem to be like, where the hell does this money come from? Do they think that Deion Sanders is just going to bring all this money in and they're going to be have they're going to be able to pay for him? I don't know. Could you imagine being like a, like a lacrosse player or something and it's like you're on a full ride and it's like all of a sudden your your scholarship gets cut because they got to pay Deion Sanders $5 million <laughs> a year. Like, are, are there any, like, like they can do that? I don't know. I don't know how the rules work. I know there's very, there's very specific rules that protect sports like that. I know that's also why girls sports in college, there tends to be a whole lot more of them because the budgets are supposed to be equalized. Sure. And for a lot of schools, the football budget is the boys' sports budget. Right. So I don't know how the hell this is going to work out. Could you imagine if like <laughs> if like 
like tuition gets jacked up through the roof. Right. Because they don't have it now. I mean, it's not like a college is a business. Right. It's not like there's like revenue streams just like coming in. Yeah. It's not like you just like ramp up production of a certain product. Right. To kind of compensate <laughs> for this shit. So I don't know. Now, what I did hear, and this is kind of funny, is that Mike Zimmer is in talks to become Colorado's defensive coordinator. Mike, Mike, Mike Zimmer from, from the Vikings. From the Vikings. Yes. <laughs> He's not a bad coach. He'd be better as a coordinator. Like, he was okay. Yeah. He lasted for a while. Now, what do you think about Dion? Primetime. Primetime is coming to Colorado. I mean, he proved a lie at Jackson. Yeah, but he, he also almost died. Did you hear about that whole thing? Uh-huh. He was in the hospital. I think he had, like, a toe amputated or something. Jesus He Christ. had some, like, ridiculous infection. He didn't coach, like, the one season he was, like, in the, in the hospital for the entire thing. <laughs> So. But he 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 brought a lot of stuff to Jackson. Yeah, he definitely through did. All of his connections and everything, he put Jackson on the map. Now I will always think of Deion Sanders more as a baseball player than a football player. Sure, I just think it's funny. That's pretty funny. It's like he's gonna show up and he's just like bankrupt the entire institution. <laughs> Because well, he better win. He's gonna. <laughs> he's probably gonna end up being the most. Now nah, I'm assuming Colorado is a public institution. I believe so. Now at least in Ohio, coaches at a public institution are considered state employees. Like for a while, the highest paid state employee of the state of Ohio was Urban Meyer. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that funny? That's funny. So I'm assuming it's gonna be a similar situation in Colorado. I'm sure. Anyways, that's all I got with that one. So. This next one. I don't know how I feel about this. I haven't read the whole article. Oh. But uh, it's a little older. It's from November 24th. This is from archaeology. News.art.net.com. The discovery of the oldest human footprints in North America thrilled researchers. It turns out they may not be so old. I don't know how Graham Hancock will feel about this. This is bullshit. I'm just telling you. That That's why I, I, <laughs> I headed this with, I don't know how I feel about this sure. article. Sure. A joint team of American researchers has contradicted previous claims that fossilized footprints found in 2009 in the Lake Otero Basin at New Mexico's White Sands National Park are the oldest in North America, allegedly from the last Ice Age. The group's latest work appeared in a recent edition of Quaternary Research. Last September, researchers from the U.S. Geological Survey radiocarbon dated Rupia Corhoso seeds lodged throughout the footprints. Their results, their results implied the footprints were left between 22,800 to 21,130 years ago. Previously, the earliest known human beings in North America were dated between 14,000 and 16,000 years ago. If true, the conclusion would upend all matter manner of assumptions in the field. The team published its findings in Science last year. This is a bombshell, Ruth Grun, an academic archaeologist not involved in the study, observed. It's very hard to disprove. Charles Oviat, a Kansas State University geologist who helped refute those claims, told Heritage Today this week that he read the original science article and was initially struck not only by how tremendous the footprints were on their own, but how important accurate dating would be. You got the, ba- the basic gist of the article. It's really long. Sure. But, yeah, I don't know how Graham Hancock would feel about this article. Now, we did cover this when it first released. Did it? Did we, we did cover this one last year. I can't remember what, I couldn't remember what episode it was. It was definitely one that we recorded at my house, if that helps you out in it. Any. Can't remember. Um, but the the issue with this one is that the findings that they found were kind of discussed previously, but it didn't make it to the news until last year mm. that all oh, these might be older. So now we're seeing a pivot back to the more established mindset yeah. of yep. no, this probably isn't what we thought it was, yada yada yada. Right. When this is just one finding of many that would lead to human involvement, human activity, whatever in the North America before the land bridge coming from Asia through Alaska right. across the Bering Strait. Right. So this is kind of interesting. And what was the source on this one again? Do you remember? News.artnet.com. Okay. So I'm not familiar with that source at all. Archaeology. But the, uh... it's it's interesting. And again, we, we, we've criticized the science of archaeology kind of heavily throughout sure. different episodes of the podcast. It's interesting to see that they're like, oh, well, we can kind of squeak it back towards what we were yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. And to me, at least, the biggest travesty is that kids in school are taught definitive fact that humans cross the land bridge when the evidence isn't nearly as solid as you would think it would be. Right. And it, you would feel like with that, it should be taught as a theory as here's what we kind of think as in terms of instead of it being like definitive yeah, fact. As actual fact. Because yeah. like we said, this case is pretty solid and this article that you're presenting doesn't just prove the fact that humans might have been here earlier. It doesn't. Right. It just brings up speculation that it might not be. 
Right. Which, you think about it this way, you can pick and choose data as much as you want to. And especially if you're a specialist in a science, you can pick and choose data that supports your claim without a whole lot of people being able to call you out on it, if that makes any for, sense. For sure. So, we'll see what happens with that one. But Yeah, interesting. I don't think, uh, I yeah. think Graham Hancock would I, be able I, to. I think Graham Hancock's got the correct idea here he's he's on to something he's his everything that he brings to the table is really compelling to me sure and even when when it's like you watch the joe rogan episodes where they bring in like more conventional archaeologists they can't really do a whole lot with grand hancock you they know can't I mean? they can't so anyways is that all you got with that one yep that's that was it. a good one i'm happy we brought that one to the table oh yeah i got one more quick one and this is like a pretty funny news story all things told my source for this one's gonna be finance.yahoo.com however this article is originally published on fortune.com Only six people showed up to the European Union's $400,000 party in the metaverse. (laughs) The EU commission has tried and failed to be down with the kids. The commission's foreign aid department threw a virtual gala on Tuesday night, having spent 387,000 euros or about $400,000 on developing their metaverse platform in an attempt to attract the interests of young people. Only six showed up. That's rough. According to one of the only attendees, the Vex correspondent Vince Chadwick, it was an immediate flop and he was the only one left after several bemused chats with roughly five other humans who briefly joined. Chadwick shared a short clip on Twitter showing the multicolored paperclip shaped avatars dancing on a stage next to a tropical beach. Is anybody out there? Read one message on the screen. The concert is just the same DJ spinning the same music, said another. Struggling in its early days, the metaverse space is part of an expensive plan designed to promote the EU Commission's Global Gateway Initiative, which aims to spend $300 billion by 2027, building new infrastructure in developing countries and the official trailer was dropped on their social media mid-October. The platform was supposed to be a new way to explore the initiative through a series of hero stories in a virtual environment, according to the commission. Now, I could go on with this one for a while, but they spent $400,000 on this grand metaverse party. Okay. Now, the metaverse is not taking off how Zuckerberg and the rest of these clowns thought it was going to take off. Now, is this ran through Meta, like their it's, program It's or associated whatever? with it. The metaverse, as it stands, right now is like a collection of different programs but meta is like the definitive sure like like the starting point it's like you got to think about it i guess the easiest way is like a different console like xbox versus playstation yeah. versus nintendo so it didn't get into like which one it was on but meta has been the the driving force more so than microsoft i know microsoft's in it a little bit and a couple other companies are in it but it's been facebook and meta more so than any of the other ones right now the eu eu plans to invest 300 billion dollars in this shit okay for First of all, six people showed up. Six people were like, man, I got to go to this European Union party. So th- this is the government doing this yes. shit? Yes. Do they not know that kids don't give a fuck about government or anything like that? Who, who, who in the hell would do this? Who, bloated, who, who, bloated bureaucracy with dis, uh, how disengaged, dis- yeah. disengaged viewpoints of the world. How, how how disengaged can you be? You can be pretty disengaged. Like, could you imagine if, if we were doing this shit, if Joe Biden opened up a party on the metaverse well he's pretty disengaged as well i mean yeah here's the thing though is with these positions like college professors for example don't live in the real world no they do i've sat through a month enough of them to know that they don't have any fucking clue what's actually going on sure they have no conceptual even of what they're talking about they don't actually know what they couldn't put it into practice when it comes to government bureaucracy it's a very similar thing because it's very tough to get rid of a government bureaucrat right especially if you play by the rules if you just play by the rules you can do absolutely nothing at work as long as you follow the rules you're not going to get fired Sure. Especially in the European Union, where there is no market to dictate uh, the financial viability of anything. So Sure. Six people showed up. Six. That's bad. That's not a good look. And one of them was a reporter that was just curious about how (laughs) it was going to look, and I was like, man, this isn't good. You know what? They were like, you know what? This thing took off. We're going to dedicate $300 billion to this shit. And I guess the staff thought it was going to be bad. They described it as digital garbage and depressing and embarrassing, among other Terms. That's rough. And so, they wasted how much money? Four hundred thousand dollars. Four hundred thousand dollars. Taxpayer money. Three hundred eighty-seven thousand euros. Unreal. And don't worry, they're only going to spend three hundred billion dollars more. <laughs> 
on this type of topic. So uh, that's, that's all I got with that one. So are we ready? Yep, let's do it. Let's see how quickly we can run through this main topic. Yeah, we're going to have to. What time is it? This is going to be a mess. <laughs> all right, episode number 92. This is basically going to be a part two of our influential people episode. I think it was technically called lesser known influential people. Yes. This is basically a part two to that. Kind of a part two. Now, Ben was, I don't know what the hell you were actually talking about with this topic. I don't really know either. I brought three different people to the to the main discussion. Same. Now, all three of my people, at least, are going to be inter- interconnected. They're all, this is, this is going to be a weird. If I can pull this off, it's going to be really good. It's, there's a possibility <laughs> it's not going to pull off. That's all right. Um, One of these people is actually, some of our listeners are, have heard of. I would say even a second one. That's some okay. people have probably heard of. The third one, I don't think anybody's heard of, though. Sounds good. So I mean, wanna, we, we, we can branch off. It doesn't matter. Do you want to jump into this one or do you want to get want me to get started? I can get started. Go ahead. Doesn't matter. Sounds good. All right, my first guy. Have you ever heard of Abraham Flexner? No. This guy's pretty cool. Awesome. All right, Abraham Flexner, born in April of 1866. Okay. Abraham is called the father of modern medical education. Interesting. So what's crazy is this guy is the person who would lead to the complete reform of how medical education is taught in the United States at the college level. And he's not even a doctor. He's... It's funny how that works, isn't it? Right. He, he's just an educator who was the founder and director of the preparatory college in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, he himself, he completed a BA in classics at John Hopkins University, where he studied for only two years. In 1905, he pursued graduate studies in psychology at Harvard University and at the University of Berlin. Now, this is where this guy kind of gets famous. So, Flexner wrote a book in 1908 called The American College. And this book had suggestions and criticisms of the way college students were taught in the United States. I could write a similar book today. Right. And much of the public just kind of shrugged them off. They kind of they kind of thought these views were kind of radical. They kind of said, you know, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. How, how the hell can he speak on this? But the Carnegie Foundation took notice of this book. And they were like, you know what? We want you to do a study on 155 medical colleges in the United States and in Canada. So he did a study which concluded in 1910, which sparked the reform of the medical education system. And that reform still is in... It had a huge impact on how they do medical education today. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy. And his uh, report ended up being called the Flexner Report. So out of that report, reformed all basically almost all the American colleges at the medical at you know uh, medical education. Sure. The specific impacts of the Flexner Report um, included so average physician quality has increased significantly after all this shit. Medicine has become a lucrative and well-respected profession. A physician must receive, at minimum, six years, preferably eight years, of post-secondary education, typically in a university setting. Medical education is based on research specifically in the fields of human um, physiology and biochemistry. Medical research follows the same protocols as specific as scientific research. The state government is must approve the... What? Dude, whoever the fuck wrote that? <laughs> The state government must approve the funding of any medical school and medical schools are subject to state that any medical schools are subject to state regulation. State branches of the American Medical Association oversee all conventional medical schools in each state. So he set a lot of that shit up for how they do all the extensive education they do for nurses, doctors, and all that shit today. Well, I mean, that's important shit. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's really. And he also, he also started the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University, which included some of the greatest thinkers and scientists of all time doing research at the advanced uh, research at uh, Princeton, like uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer and Einstein all did research there and went there and all that shit. Sounds pretty good to me. Oh, yeah. So what's also crazy is he also thought a lot of these, some of these schools were in such rough shape, <laughs> what they were doing, that he thought that two thirds of them needed to be shut down completely. <laughs> and out of 150 66 of the schools were completely shut down. Oh my god. And were not allowed to uh, They every one of them closed. And they needed to be closed. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, sorry it was a little choppy, but that's basically everything about Abraham Flexner. Anybody who's a doctor or a nurse out there, you can thank this guy for your medical education 
system. Sounds good. Yep. Now we're going to be taking a completely different tone with our my next guy. Sweet. Now this is somebody I've been considering talking about on different episodes for a while now, but I didn't actually know a whole lot about the guy. I just heard his name a lot. Sure. And we're going to get into him today. Um, this is a British man named. Alistair Crawley. Have you ever heard this name before? Kind of rings a bell. He, you said Flexner was the father of American medical studies or whatever. Well, he he created the basically modern medical education. Sure. The way okay. it's set up, like okay. the, the structure of it, I guess. So Alistair Crawley would be the father of modern occultism. <laughs> Okay. Now, this guy's a fucking weirdo. He lived from the years 1875 until 1947. He is classified as an occultist, writer, and mountaineer. Hmm. So, Alistair Crowley was born in a British family. They were kind of like, you know when the pilgrims came over, how they had that like religious system, like mm-hmm. the really, really literal Christian sect, basically. Yeah. They were kind of like a British offshoot of that type of mindset. So, it was a very strict Christian, like, fun weren't they heavily protestant yes they're this well most of england's protestant but sure this would be a fundamentalist basically so the bible is literal fact yada 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 that type of environment now what made them weird though is they were also successful successful brewers and you know in britain all the british blokes they like to enjoy a pint pretty much all the time right so beer in england's pretty profitable so the crowley family had a fortune so alistair was born into this strict christian very rich family sure now he was a little bit of a weirdo and he didn't really take to anything until i guess it would be college now he was into some kind of like some weird shit but he went to the university of cambridge and he was involved in the chess club but he's also started getting this like some weird shit kind of like esoteric knowledge like he was obsessed with, like the egyptians and like the weird the summoning of the gods and shit sure so what ended up happening is he was in college in 1898 and he left without a degree but he inherited his parents fortune because his parents ended up dying so he was left with a whole lot and nothing in terms of he was very smart but didn't have a lot to show for it but had a whole lot of money to just basically do whatever the hell he wanted to do with. Eventually he ended up hooking up with this group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. (laughs) (laughs) which was derived from the Rosicrucians who were part of the group that was kind of like involved in like the Holy Grail shit, like derived from the Templars and all that shit. So this was a group, this was like late 19th century, early 20th century that was obsessed with like the dark arts and like the Templars and all that shit and the Egypt shit going on. Now, before I add anything more to this, this guy, Alistair Crowley, and the two other people I'm about to talk about were covered heavily in their own sections on the last podcast on the left. They did some excellent, very deep, like, five-episode breakdowns on all three of these people. So there's, like, literally, like, 15 hours worth of material. If you're interested in this type of shit, you can listen to, like, the detail, like, the day-by-day breakdowns of these people's lives. That's crazy. I'm going to try to do it in about 10 minutes. Total. <laughs> Good between luck. all three. Good luck. But, um, so this Alistair Crowley guy, amongst other things, he was into this dark art shit, but he was also, like, a mountain climber. So he <laughs> he tried to climb K2, which is the second highest mountain in the world. It's in the Himalayas it's in Pakistan and bear in mind he was rich he was able to travel wherever the hell he wanted mm-hmm. he tried to climb K2 which is the most dangerous mountain in the world to climb and I guess uh, something ended up happening on one of these mountain climbs and it's like he got in a fight with like his group and they wanted to take a different route and he took a different route from this group <sighs> and they ended up getting stranded and he could hear their calls for help and he just said fuck you to them basically and it's kind of like left them stranded on the mountain did they end up dying? yeah they did oh that's terrible it's, it's rough so what this guy would do and i'm gonna try to break it down very simply now the last podcast on the left was a very good source if you want to listen to this type of shit is he started writing like poetry and books and he ended up getting himself published pretty quickly so he has a bunch of books out there that are like in like print today that you can like buy and read about his like esoteric knowledge and his poetry and all this shit but he was very good at like joining these like weird secret societies that existed and like becoming like the leader of them but then (laughs) pissing them off at the same time yeah what he ended up doing eventually was he formed his own religion called thelema T-H-E-L-E-M-A which basically centered himself as like like the deity but was, he was like a satanic god basically sure and he claims that he went to some he broke into some pyramid in Egypt and he was actually there and he claims that he summoned some like Egyptian god
god and the god gave him like all these powers and all this shit so he was like consistently doing these like rituals at one point he was dicking around in sicily and something happened and one of his young followers died and it was it was human sacrifice but they didn't want to publish it as human sacrifice so he got banned from italy but what makes this guy more crazy is that during world war one he was in the united states and he joined a pro-german like a pro-german faction within the united states that was like writing on behalf of them all while actually being employed by the british government as a spy (laughs) and he spent a significant amount of his time as an actual on the books spy for the british government that's wild which is insane and there's questions as to how long this was going on because they know they know pretty much for sure that he was a spy at least for some of this they think he might have been a spy for a lot of it like they think that (laughs) that when he when he joined the hermetic order of the golden dawn he was sent on a spy mission by the british government to do so (laughs) and he ended up either liking the organization or just ingratiating himself so well into what was going on so this alistair crawley guy starts his own religion with this thematic order that basically made himself the god and was a british spy doing all this shit was like a ridiculously accomplished mountain climber and a published author so he had all this shit going on with him now at the time he was too crazy because he was promoting a whole lot of shit that was completely taboo back then because i'm not going to get into the details but a lot of his shit was like sex cult related shit sure so he had a lot of like weird orgies going on and whatnot Mm. and like some of the like the spells they would cast were just ridiculous and there's human sacrifice going on but he remained like somewhat out there there until he ran out of money then he ended up running out of money in his 70s and then he died in like some poor house but he's influential because all of like the modern occultism that kind of sprung up during the 60s like i guess kind of sprang from him from his published works and whatever and these like rock stars that were obsessed with like the idea ended up really kind of like clinging to him so in 1980 ozzy osbourne had a song called mr crawley which goes mr crawley I've heard that song. Yeah, it's a pretty good song. It it bangs pretty hard. And then uh, the Beatles have his picture on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart (laughs) Club Band, the album. He's on that cover. And (laughs) Jimmy Page bought one of his old houses. (laughs) So think about that for a second. Yeah, so a lot of uh, high-status people. A lot of people are really into this guy. Yeah. And I didn't do any of the story justice because it's it's fuck nuttery. It's, It's insanity what was going on with this guy. And there's a lot of drugs and whatnot going on as well, but sure. That's Alistair Crawley, and he's gonna lead into my next person. So awesome. What else you got? Next guy I have. Have you ever heard of Maurice Hilleman? Can't say that I have. Maurice Hilleman is an American microbiologist born in Montana, 1919. Grew up on a farm, you know, handled animals, chickens, and shit like that. <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Maurice is described as one of the most influential vaccinologists of all time. Okay. He graduated first in his class in 1941 from Montana State University, and he also won a fellowship at the University of Chicago and received a doctoral degree in microbiology in 1944. His his doctoral thesis was on chlamydia infections, which at that time, they were thought to be caused by a virus, but Hilleman showed that these infections were in fact caused by a species of uh, bacterium, which glow, which grows only inside of cells. So this guy was making breakthroughs early from the start. So right after he graduated, he went to work as a researcher where he developed his first vaccine to protect troops from the Japanese B encephalitis virus. He would go on to develop or improve around 40 different vaccinations. This includes vaccinations for chickenpox, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, measles, meningitis, mumps, and rubella. Wow. Out of 14 vaccinations, that are recommended for children today, nine of them were developed by Hilleman. According to the New York Times, he has saved more lives than any other scientist in the 20th century. Think about that for a second. That's insanity. It's estimated he has saved over 10 million lives. Now, the end of this guy's life is really fucking sad. It sucks. I feel bad for him. Okay. So, what happened towards the end of his life? So, this guy was basically set up to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Sure. Like, he's got his name stamped on it. Can't take away anything this guy did. But he ended up not winning it because because this fucking asshole doctor named Andrew Wakefield published an article in a uh, pretty established uh, medical journal called 
Lancet, and he's he was basically discrediting uh, Hilleman's MMR vaccines, which included uh, the meningitis, mumps, rubella. And what he did with that vaccine was, back in the day, that used to be six shots. Well, he got them down into two shots. Sure. And we all get them when we're, when we're babies. Yeah. He posted an article discrediting those vaccines and claiming that his, that vaccine led to the to the recent rise in autism. And instead of, and, and everyone took this, this thing as fact. And he basically lost him the Nobel Peace Prize. Instead of getting the prize, he like ended his life with all this fucking hate mail and shit. Like everyone was giving yeah. him shit. And he ended up dying in 2005. But in 2010, the um, publication, Lancet, they retracted the article after finding that there's absolutely no evidence that his vaccine contributes to autism in any way. Yeah, that's the the whole vaccine and autism thing is kind of bullshit because, and it's not a perfect science, but it's no. just, there, there's different there's different things that get involved. But right, but I didn't even touch on what this guy did, but uh, he's definitely a hero. Saved tens of millions of lives with his vaccines. Sure, and uh, there's a lot more to get out of the guy, but that's the main gist. You you can thank him for all the shots that you get when you're a baby, protecting you from all the. All that shit, the measles, mumps, hepatitis. We all had, we had to get hepatitis A shots to go to our high school, remember? Yeah, yeah. that was not fun. You can thank Hilleman for that. Thank you, Hilleman. I've got another American hero for us. Sure. Now, this guy wasn't responsible for saving a whole lot of lives, but he did end one life, which was his own, accidentally. Mm, that's rough. This is going to be a guy by the name of Jack Parsons. Hmm. Now, I shared earlier that all my people are going to be connected. I'm going to try to run through this guy as quickly as possible. This guy only lived for 37 years. He was born in 1914 and died in 1952. Some people consider this guy the father of rocket science, and more specifically, U.S. rocket science that put a man on the moon. Mm. Now, this guy died in 1952, but he was involved in an awful lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is an understatement. This is the craziest, sure. probably the single craziest person that I've ever heard of. Like, this guy doesn't seem real. Like, I was listening to the last podcast on the left talk about him for a while. This was way back. This is back before I decided to put all this shit together today. And he is a fuck nut. Like, this is this is the craziest life that I've ever heard of. Now, I'm not going to do it justice, but we're going to get into it. Now, before we get into this too deeply, yes, this guy was an actual rocket scientist. He was involved in an awful lot of the technology that developed early rocket launching propulsion. Because back in the 1920s and 1930s, it was kind of like a science fiction-esque concept of trying to get somebody to the moon. So there were lots and lots of people out there that were interested in the concept of space travel before space travel was actually feasible, that were trying to solve the problem of gravity and trying to come up with some propulsion mechanism capable of creating enough thrust to escape Earth's gravity and get to the moon. There's just an idea that existed because people thought, hey, we got planes going now, we can do more with this. So there's a lot of study going on with a lot of different people and it's very, I guess, for lack of a better word, it was accessible to like the average idiot could like build a jet engine or a rocket engine, etc. if they had a basic understanding of the physics necessary. So there's a lot of this shit going on. Now this guy was involved in it, especially in the 1930s, he ended up going to Caltech, which is where he, like, established himself as an academic. But he was corresponding with Werner von Braun, who we've talked about on the podcast before, the rocket scientist involved with the V2. Yep. He was corresponding with this guy, and they were even talking on the phone back when Werner von Braun was still a German scientist before the Nazi party even rose up. Damn. Which is kind of crazy to think about. That is wild. When you put it all together, it's wild. So they were kind of talking, like, physics and rocket propulsion and whatnot. And I'm not going to get into the super crazy details, but Parsons was involved in different companies that created different things and he's credited with a bunch of different inventions he even has a crater on the moon named after him and nasa named it after him after they land on the moon basically they're like he's important enough that he gets to this, this crater is the jack parsons crater basically <laughs> that's sweet so he was relatively established that being said in terms of rocket science as it's studied he kind of got scrubbed away and the reason why he didn't get talked about and scrubbed away even though he was involved in all the steps and it's it's easy you could point at rocket science and say that rocket science would not have put a man on the moon without some contributions from Jack Parsons. The reason why he got scrubbed away is while he was a rocket scientist by day, he was an obsessed occultist by night. <laughs> and back when Alistair Crawley, who I talked about previously, was still alive, he created this church, this Thelemic church that he created where he was kind of like the like the deity, like the saint or whatever. There weren't a lot of practitioners, but Jack Parsons was one of them. <laughs> Unreal. So... <laughs> so 
this super ridiculous rocket scientist who was doing all this shit was also a disciple of Aleister Crowley, and they would write to each other and whatnot. And they, they I think they did meet at one point. Now, this Jack Parsons guy kind of took the occult aspect of that and tried to, like, blend his science into it as much as he could, but he wouldn't ever give the shit up. Right. Now, what I'm going to do, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blend my third guy into this. I'm sure. just going to try and condense it all real quick. Go ahead. So, in the, <laughs> in the late 40s, Parsons was doing the rocket science, but he was trying to, like, form his, like, own church based on Crowley's teachings, because Crowley died in 47, but before he died, he was forming his own, like, little, like, guild of like-minded people. Now, Parsons came from some money, too. He had some money, and enough of those rocket science would generate enough for income to the point where he wouldn't always be broke. So, he ended up having a house out west. Of, he turned into, like, a boarding house. So, he basically had, like, different, like, occultists living there, and different weirdos that he would find, and he would basically, like, give them, like, a little apartment within this, like, big boarding house that he had. So, he was living with a wife, and his wife's younger sister, who was a teenager, ended up moving in with them in like the boarding house or whatever. Eventually, by the time the sister was 17, but things were going on before then because Jack Parsons was also a pervert, he ended up leaving his wife for his wife's younger sister. His wife, who was kind of involved in the esoteric occultism, was out doing something. And when she came back, she found her younger sister wearing her clothes and referring to her herself as Jack Parsons' wife. That's weird. his wife, Sarah, who lived until 1997, or his girlfriend, Sarah, who was a younger sister, uh, basically, she ended up getting really into, like, his shit, like, even more so than the wife was. So she, him and Jack Parsons and Sarah were together for a while, and as weird as it is. Yeah. But that didn't last too long, because Jack Parsons made a new friend, who was also a science fiction writer, because these guys were all, like, science fiction writers at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they're all kind of, like, nerdy weirdos that were writing books about rocket travel and all this shit. He made friends with a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard. I don't know if you know that name. Hmm. You're gonna, you're, it's gonna, it's gonna get crazy. Sure. So L. Ron Hubbard, who is the third person I'm talking about, moved into the house with them. This crazy cult, whatever. And L. Ron Hubbard was also interested in Alistair Crowley's mysticism and all this shit. Now, a big theme in this in this house was free love, basically. So they were kind of orgies were going on. Sure. And I'm not gonna get into details. But L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons ended up getting involved in this whole thing, and they were gonna try to summon an Egyptian god called mm. Babylon, B-A-B-A-L-O-N, and they created this whole thing where they were going to do this thing called Babylon Workings, where they went into this ridiculous, like, ritual state where they were trying to, like, conjure up this, like, sex god, basically, called Babylon. And in 1946, they tried to do it, but it didn't work. Or mm. whatever. We, it might have worked. I guess they, they tried to do a whole bunch of shit, and, like, it, they created prophecies, and I guess some of the prophecies came true. Mm. But they were doing all this ridiculous shit. So then, quickly after that, L. Ron Hubbard ended up stealing Jack Parsons' girlfriend. Now, bear in mind, his wife was still in the picture, too. But Sarah, the younger sister, ended up falling for L. Ron Hubbard instead of Jack Parsons. Now, given the, the the intermingling of the whole house and the culture that they were cultivating, Jack was okay with this whole thing because of free love and all this shit. So L. Ron Hubbard ended up stealing Sarah away from him. <laughs> now, L. Ron Hubbard is, became known in the 50s as the author of a book called Dianetics, which was a, basically, it was taking psychiatry and psychology and trying to turn a religion, create a religion around it. So it was like a religious upbringing of how to handle psychological issues, basically. So it was a very popular book. And L. Ron Hubbard ended up becoming the most translated and most published author in world history, (laughs) starting with this book. Now, what ended up happening is this Sarah woman left Jack Parsons for L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard needed money, though, because he had these ambitions for, he wanted to create his own religion, basically. Now, Jack was kind of doing this type of shit based on Alistair Crowley's teachings, but he didn't actually, it didn't actually get off the ground for him because he was also a rocket scientist at the same time. Sure. And he he ended up blowing himself up in a rocket experiment. Oh my God. Which is how he died. And it was like a Hollywood rocket experiment. And they were like, be careful because we want to do this thing, but it's going to be a little crazy, but we think you're qualified to do this shit. And he was, he, he couldn't make it happen. So he blew himself up. That's but, terrible. So Elrond Hubbard, before this whole thing happened, stole Jack Parsons' wife and then hustled him out of like $20,000 to start his new business that he was working on, which ended up turning into this whole like Dianetics promotion thing and he was getting all these books published and whatnot L. Ron Hubbard was but then he ended up going bankrupt after Jack Parsons died but he still stole the girl he sold the girl and he sold the money after he went bankrupt he took the idea of Dianetics and re kind of formulated it into the book of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard became the founder of Scientology Mm. which we all know is a very famous and very controversial religion today so thanks to Aleister Crowley 
Kennedy and Jack Parsons <laughs> doing all their weird ass shit. Yeah. Scientology got off the ground. Son of a bitch. Now Elrond Hubbard was a different character, and I can't get into the details with him, but he ended up like buying these boats and he formed this thing called Sea Org, where he basically formed like a <laughs> like a boat cult where they were all living on this boat and doing all this ridiculous shit. It's all about like like deep like meditation and like in it's all about like like looking inward about yourself and trying to figure out like what your problems are and like crushing your problems. That's what Scientology basically is. Didn't we already talk about this guy on did a we? previous episode? I feel like we might have. Did, did, didn't he have a son? No, not that I... We, he did, but not that we covered. Yeah, there, there, um, there's a show on Netflix having to do with Scientology. Yes, and yes. this this guy is in it, I'm pretty sure. L. Ron Hubbard, well, he's the founder of it. Yeah. In the 80s, he was like a household name, basically. Yeah, and there's shit going on with his, with his son, too, I think. Sure. But I, but I can't really remember the No, details. he didn't have like a son, but he had like a Padawan oh, I... who was named David Miskovich, who is the leader of the Scientology church today. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind, this is a religion and it got tax-exempt status. So what ended up happening with L. Ron Hubbard is he basically formed his own like tax-exempt entity, basically. <laughs> he was making so much money because he were publishing these books and these books were selling. Right. Now, there's a little bit of controversy with that, but the books itself were selling. Like, Dianetics is like the book one of Scientology. Like, there's another, there's more books after that. And it's basically, it's like a pyramid scheme on steroids, but it's all about like enlightenment that you're never actually going to find. But David Miskovich, who's the leader of Scientology today, was Tom Cruise's best man when he married Katie Holmes. <laughs> and they're like best friends. Right. And we all know that Tom Cruise is into this shit. So is John Travolta. Right. And it's extreme. It's it's crazy. And when you look at L. Ron Hubbard, he saw the concept of Dianetics as a get-rich-quick scheme. He saw religion as the key to financial success. So he was like, how can I both create and sell a religion based on my interest in as like sci-fi? Because he was a sci-fi writer before all this shit. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's, that's wild. So you got Alistair Crowley, who was this crazy cultist who inspired this Jack Parsons guy to become a rocket scientist by day, a cultist by night, and Jack Parsons found L. Ron Hubbard and got him all into this shit. <laughs> and now we have the Church of Scientology. So yeah. these are all very influential people in their own way. Who do you blame more? You blame them all for being fuck nuts. <laughs> Jack Parsons is the craziest one, and he's the one we know the least amount about. Right. Because he was both an influential rocket scientist and an influential cultist. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. I know that ran way too long. But... No, you're good. I think you pulled it off. You want me to do my last one, yeah, or should we Cut it. It for yeah, we'll get it in. I'll make it quick. Have you ever heard of Hetty Lamar? Did we already talk about her? I don't believe so. Okay, go ahead. Did we? I don't know. So her real name, she was born in Vienna, Austria. Oh. 1914. She was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. That is her real name. And she's mostly known for starring in classic films. She was she's regarded as one of the best actresses of all time. She was um I don't know if you have you ever seen Samson and Delilah, the nineteen forty nine movie? It's the only movie I've ever seen with her. And it's a classic. It's really good. Sure. But she also starred in Cooper Canyon in uh, from 1950. Okay. And Conspirators in 1944. So she was in a lot of big hits back then. I haven't seen any of... I haven't seen those two, but... But most people don't know about her brain, and she really loved inventing things. Okay. So at the high ever, at the high ever acting career, she wanted to contribute to the war effort. It was around World War II time. Sure. And she had a producer and pianist named George Antheil, and they basically developed the basis for all modern wireless communication. Really? So, and it's called signal hopping. Okay. So, at the time, the United States military wanted a way to basically fire torpedoes without the information getting intercepted by the enemy. Does that make sense? Sure. So, they patented an idea called secret communication system. So, they were trying to invent a device to block enemy ships from jamming torpedo guidance signals. And they patented the idea, but for some reason, the military military didn't use it they just they, <laughs> so they, <no. laughs> yeah, they, they, they yeah which well, is we, we're, not which feeling, is, we're not feeling this one which is kind of ridiculous and uh, so the navy engineers rejected it i guess they they were saying it was too cumbersome but during the 1950s with the availability of lightweight transistors the navy shared lamar's concept with a contractor associated to create a uh, sonoboy which could be dropped into the water from an airplane to detect submarines contractor and others over the years used lamar's design as a springboard to bigger ideas although the patent belonged to lamar 
and Antheol did not expire until 1959. They never received compensation of use of their concept. 1962's Cuban Missile Crisis. All U.S. ships on the blockade line around Cuba were armed with torpedoes guided by a frequency hopping system. Now, what's interesting about her is she started at a young age just monkeying with shit in her house. She was compl- She's completely self-taught all this shit. See, sometimes the most brilliant minds are self-taught. Yeah, it's incredible. So, she basically created the technology for Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, cordless phones, and cell phones. All type of cordless communication. Yeah, see, cordless still hurts my head. It's like, how can, like, a song just, like, go from your computer to my phone? It's unbelievable. It could go, like, through me. Like, the song could travel through me. Now, to the phone. on, um, I know you don't like Smithsonian, but Smithsonian, and I believe History Collection, and also on Wikipedia, have a really, it's really complicated, I didn't want to get into it, but a breakdown of their experiment on how they figure out, how they figured out how to signal hop, and they basically used instruments. They used, uh, a piano, and I don't, I can't really explain how they did it, because it's above my brain. Sure. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, Hedy Lamar. That's how the cookie crumbles. That is how the cookie crumbles. That was a pretty good one. Yeah, um, it was interesting. Yeah, that type of shit kind of breaks my brain, like, how all that's possible. And there was a lot of inventors I was thinking about doing. Now, one quick thing before we wrap this one up, L. Ron Hubbard, who I was talking about, was also in the Navy for a while, and he was actually put in command of two different Navy vessels for a while, <laughs> and it did not last too long. Uh, they bet. realized that we, they could not trust him in command. <laughs> so, anyways, how do you think that episode went? You think it went okay? I thought it went pretty good. I know, I rambled on. Like no, that, fucking that, that's no problem. Man, man. I have to cite, once again, last podcast on the left, those excellent breakdowns on all three of these people, Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons, and L. Ron Hubbard. They've got excellent, over-the-top, detailed breakdowns, details that you never needed to know about. I tried to sum it up as quickly as possible and kind of kept it as clean as I possibly could. Sure. But um, I thought this was a pretty interesting episode. Yeah, I agree. I was going to do Alistair Crowley, and I couldn't decide who else I wanted to do. And then I was thinking about L. Ron Hubbard, maybe, and then I forgot about You always forget about Jack Parsons in the mix. But he was kind of like the linchpin of the whole thing. Sure. And all three of them were, at least in my opinion, highly influential. Especially I agree. Even, even today. And of course, your, your people as well. Yeah. Very, mostly scientifically oriented. Right. But still, people that I haven't had, I hadn't heard of before. So I, I almost did a guy, uh, his name was uh, Malcolm McLean. Okay. He invented the shipping container. Which is huge. Especially, <laughs> I studied, I studied uh, industrial logistics and all that shit in college. The shipping container is like the greatest thing of it all time. It literally is. Like, we would not live the lives that we do today without the fucking shipping container. Definitely not. So, that's a good one. We could have done that one. Probably could have done I would, that one. I would have nerded out. Because seriously, like, up until, like, not that long ago, shipping across the pond, it was, he had a ton of longshoremen yep. who would just haul the boxes off. And it's like, yeah, there was, he, like, no systematic process to he, it. He was explaining, he was, he was like, he remembers just standing there on a port and just watching all this time being wasted, all these goods being loaded and unloaded. And there were hundreds the of them. And he was just like, how can I just get the shit from the truck onto the boat and vice versa? I know the Longshoreman Union and the Steverdoer Union weren't happy with him. I'm sure they were. <laughs> that's actually, it's a it's a plot point of The Wire in season two. They talk about the docks. I need to watch The Wire. The Wire is not a bad show, but there's it's like the union, and the union numbers just keep dwindling and dwindling. And it's like, you work in the environment, so you got the young guys who cannot get hours. They show up every day, and they can't get on a job to save their lives. It's shitty. It's all because of... It's all because of... All because of this guy. McLean. Yeah. Anyways, on that note, thank you very much, guys, for listening. We'll see how this episode turns out. If you are an influential person, tweet us at 30 in the... Yes, and please comment on Facebook if you know anybody that we should have talked about. Uh, we, we paint in broad strokes on this podcast. We don't really go super in-depth on a lot of this shit. Sure. But we're more of a kind of like a launching off point because a lot of our listeners might not have heard about some of these interesting characters that we've discussed. Right. So um, please do your own research. If you, if you found anything that we think we should have talked about what we didn't talk about with any of these people, please tweet us at 30 and the Please comment on Facebook. Please let us know. We definitely get shit wrong. Um, I did have Tim help me out a little bit with Alistair Crowley. He sent me just some spark notes nice. to kind of plan for. So Tim's good at that stuff. Yes, thank you, Tim. He did like the last episode of the Empire's episode. He said that was a very good one. So. Nice. Thanks, Tim. Um, anyways, on that note, please keep listening. Please uh, share us with your friends. Please make people listen. Whatever we can do. We're doing all right. We're still keeping keeping up. Definitely. But we got to get some uh, promotion going. So, anyways, anything else, Ben? Nope, that's it for me. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for listening. Peace. I don't know where they played. What what year? That was the Olympics, but I don't know where the hell they played at. 92. Um, fuck, I can't remember. I can name every player on the Dream Team, and I can do it really quickly. Was it Russia? Um, no. Ah.
I think it was like it was, was like was, Paris or somewhere. Was that the year the United States beat Russia in hockey? No, that was the Winter Olympics, and that was the Miracle on Ice. Oh, fuck. Mike Ruzioni scored scored the the game winning goal. Gotcha. I I got all that mixed so up. So the '92 Dream Team, coached by. Who the fuck was it? was a Pistons coach. The the coach of the Bad Boys was also the coach of the Dolan. Is that guy? All I know is Phil Jackson. It wasn't Phil Jackson the coach of the 2008 team? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can name every player on the Dream Team. You ready? Go ahead. Christian Leitner, Duke. He was the only player on the Dream Team that did not go to the Hall of Fame. Damn. Clyde Drexler, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Uh, Chris Mullen, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Carl Malone, John Stockton, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, and who else? Fuck. Couple other guys. Anyways. I don't know the news. Impressive. How many news stories you got today? I'm trying to think who else I missed. Did I say Larry Bird? I said Larry Bird. You said Larry Bird. A former CIA agent has shared a sock. Cot. Has shared a sock. Fuck. (laughs) Cot. A former CIA agent. Got them down into two shots. Sure. And we all get them when we're, when we're babies. Yeah. This guy posted an arguable. <laughs> Jesus, dude. I cannot. Uh, terrible. One of those days. Yeah, I'm sorry. He posted an article. Allegedly from the last Ice Age. The group's latest work appeared in the recent edition of Quaterni... Uh, Quaternary research? Can you spell it? Q-U-A-T-E-R-N-A-R-Y. Quaternary? Quaternary? Quaternary. The group's latest work appeared in a recent edition of Quaternary Research. 